Hi everybody, this is Joanne with Read Science and I am joined as always by Jeff Schomeyer, my co-host, and today we are joined by Helen Scales, who is sitting in the UK currently. She is the author of several books, including the one we will focus on today, The Brilliant Abyss, Exploring the Majestic Hidden Life of the Deep Ocean and the Looming Threat that Imperils It. And I have read past books of Helen's and loved them. So I was so excited that she had a new book and we had the opportunity to speak with her today. Do you want to say hi to everybody, Helen? Hi, everyone. Thanks for that lovely introduction. It's so nice to be here. Thank you for having me. Uh, we're so glad. So let me read your bio from the back of the book. Uh, and Helen Scales, PhD, is a marine biologist, writer, and public broadcaster. She is the authors of Spirals in Time, The Secret Life and Curious Afterlife of Seashells, and Eye of the Shoal, A Fish Watcher's Guide to Life, the Ocean, and Everything. She has written for National Geographic, The Guardian, New Scientist, BBC Wildlife Magazine, and BBC Focus, among others. Everywhere our favorite authors write, I think, um, and appears regularly on BBC Radio. She teaches marine biology and science writing at Cambridge University and advises the marine conservation charity Sea Changers. And you're sitting now in Cambridge. That's right. That's right. Yes, oh. that is correct. So not very close to the ocean, sadly. But uh, I have some fish to oh, this way to mm. keep me company, just in case I forget <laughs> what it's all about. <laughs> very good. I'm so glad you're here. Oh, it's really a pleasure. Thank you so much. It, it is a pleasure. And uh, I don't always start with glowing reviews or anything, but I think Joanne and I both found your book very rewarding, very enlightening, and great fun to read. But we all, and we also found that we both had some very strong reactions. There was astounded delight at some of the biology and the physical processes we learned about. Uh, in the deep ocean, and also our absolute horror at all the countries and corporations drooling to exploit the deep sea any way they can. And I think we'll get to all that. But to begin, I want to read out a couple of quotations and an observation I made that all relate to something I thought was an interesting theme of the entire book, and then ask you whether I was right about that and, and what you think. First quotation, the oceans have always shaped human lives, but the surface and the very edges have so far mattered the most. Second quotation, for the longest time, the only things people thought lived in the deep ocean were monsters, demons, and deities. And I remember the time when you, you talk about this time not so long ago, but in living memory, when people thought the deep ocean was basically empty. There was maybe a whale over there and things, and that informed your discussion of deep sea mining and nodules back from the day when uh, people thought that, well, these nodules have metals we can use and we'll just suck them up because nothing lives down there and nobody cares. And now we know a lot better. And then the observation uh, when you were talking about hydrothermal vents is once chemosynthetic life was found near hydrothermal vents, it also began to be found elsewhere. And so my question is, what, what does all of this, the empty deep seas, the lack of like, who knew that chemosynthetic life could even exist? Uh, what does this say about scientists' preconceptions and scientific discovery and how it's inhibited or not? Um, I thought I'd start with something easy. Okay, yeah, easy peasy. Well, uh, here's my stock answer to that. No, there's a, it's a, there's a lovely question. But that's, that um, is a, I mean, that's a question that always interests me when I'm reading things yeah. and thing, and it just seemed to keep bubbling to the surface. To yeah. say, no, absolutely. I think, and I think it is a theme through the book, which is, I mean, a part of it, I think, is just this. Um, I guess it's part of human nature to 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 look for more of what we already know and to look in a way that fits with our preconceptions to our model of the world uh, in our minds and in our, whether it's 
um, yeah, just everyday people imagining what the world is like and sort of drawing those boundaries in our minds of like, well, there's nothing there, you know, or going back to, you know, the ancient, those ancient maps of here be beasts around the edges of the bits mm -hmm. we don't know. And, and, and you kind of imagining what might be there, but kind of really, you know, assuming that there isn't, isn't much of any great interest. Um, so I guess, yeah, I think, I suppose there's two things here I'm trying to kind of grasp at. One is that sort of general perception of, of this big empty space. And I, I think that lingers a lot today. And I think mm -hmm. that underpins sort of why, and we'll get to this sort of ideas of how people feel about the, uh, the exploitation of the deep ocean. Yeah. And I think we've got a long way, a long, long way to go before it does genuinely become something that more people can kind of bring really into their hearts in terms of caring or knowing and caring about what happens in this completely unseen on this hidden part of the world even though the scientists are showing us what's there it's still very easy to ignore it so i guess that's part of it and i think that's always that's always been an issue with the ocean i think it's it, it i think it underpins a lot of my work which is trying to push against that sort of like it, we can't see it you know it's this blue blanket of ocean everything mm -hmm. down there is it's hidden and, and therefore it's disconnected from us because we can't mm -hmm. see it um so it's something to... as simple as being able to see it is a big yeah. deal in that case right i think so yeah i do i think so i think it's hard for us to generally to appreciate that there are these really critical connections between well everywhere throughout the entire tier of our living planets which is all the way to the bottom of the deepest part of the ocean as we now know so i think there's that boundary between water and air is a, is it's a physical boundary but i also think it's a it's an incredible mental boundary for us thinking about this mm -hmm. place mm -hmm. so even as the science now is starting to show us just how interconnected everything is physically, chemically, the heat that's moving around, um, just the fact, sheer fact that we're all species living mm -hmm. on this, this one planet of ours, mm -hmm. uh, whether we live in the bottom of the Mariana Trench up a mountain or mm -hmm. uh, strolling around on a beach, we're all in this together. Um, and that's a really big concept to get our heads around too, sort of generally. Mm -hmm. um, but I want to pick up another point in terms of the science. Um, there really is the sort of, you know, we look for what we know and, and and then you find more of that thing. And it's those kind of, yeah, it's like the discovery of hydrothermal vents. So suddenly, boom, like this whole new thing, this whole bubble, you know, universe almost explodes yes. because suddenly you realize it's not as we thought it was. And those, and for me, that's why I find the deep ocean so exciting um, because you do have those extraordinary moments of, oh, wait, it's not what we thought it was. This is a mm -hmm. whole new way of, of life. This is a whole new type of living, um, a whole new way, you know, yes. geology, the geological breakthroughs, you get all those kind of things. But it takes, it often it just takes um, kind of those serendipitous, like it wasn't an intention to go looking for hydrothermal vents and what lives there. I mean, sure, they were looking for the chemistry and the, the geology, but no one was going there to look for animals. They were completely blown away yeah. when they saw anything was living there at all. Um, same with things like um, those wonderful bone-eating worms, one of my favorite yes. Theosodacts. Yes. <laughs> you know, and that was, it was a, a total surprise. No one was looking for them. No one was looking at bones. And yet they came across this dead whale lying in the Monterey Canyon. There he is. Ruby, she is, I should say, Ruby the whale. I don't know if they figured out. It was a female whale. Yeah, somehow they figured out from the bones. Yeah. Covered in this pink stuff, which turned out to be a whole new life form that no one had ever seen before. Yes. But it was a total <laughs> chance discovery. As soon as you find one, then people started looking and we found them everywhere. Yeah, and, and I love that too. It's like you open this little window and go, hey, wait a minute. But it's often that chance first discovery that makes it kind of, you realize you should go look there. And I guess you just don't know what other windows we're going to open, I guess. There's, How there's hard so was it to convince? It, uh, the, the, I remember hydrothermal things sort of happening in the popular press. It's like, how hard was that convince people? That's like, no, look, there's life there. And they uh, metabolize chemistry stuff. Because I mean, it took a couple of years scientifically to figure that out. I mean, that, that first discovery, I think, was a big, I'm pretty sure it was sort of, you know, National Geographic was sort of filming yeah. it and there was yeah. pictures and so on. But it was, it was more figuring out than denying and, and yeah, having to convince so. them, wasn't it? No, I think, you know, showing people those images was very powerful. And it did take mm -hmm. a couple of years and some really smart scientists to figure out how this thing was possible and how this ecosystem, this incredibly rich ecosystem, was able to support itself in such um, extreme conditions. Mm -hmm. Um so no, I think when the science comes along, people kind of latch onto it. It's mm -hmm. it's getting to that point of doing the science, which is sometimes um, and the seeing is really challenge. important. The emphasis that you, the the remark that you made about how our main familiarity is with the surface and with the seashores, uh, 
which is very two-dimensional. We're still, I think most of us, me too, reading the book, I discover it's like, I really have no idea how unfathomably big the ocean is yeah, and how deep yeah. it is. And it, yeah. It's big. I mean, it, it, it's it's so big. It's for me. I mean, I tried in a couple of ways in the book to try and figure out ways of of demonstrating well, that. But even my that, favorite you know, was the marble. The marble. Yeah. Did you like that? That was fun. I, I love mean, the marble that. was fun. So the idea being, uh, if you just took a normal glass marble, I haven't got one to hand, but anyway, um, <laughs> I usually wave one at, at people when I'm talking about this. But yeah, the idea of if you if you sailed out over to a, you know off to a part of really deep ocean um, and dropped it over the side of your ship, um, how long would it take to get through all the different layers of the ocean? It was partly an idea of showing that it's like this kind of you know layers of like in a Sunday glass. I don't know if that's the yeah. word you would use in American like, maybe you know, dessert glass. A trifle. Like, Perhaps. A trifle glass, yeah. Uh, <laughs> nice cocktail, maybe. Um, anyway, we've got all these different layers, the twilight zone, the midnight zone, the abyss, and then the, the Hadal zone at the bottom. And that, yeah, it would take like six hours to get to the very deepest trenches in this in the Hadal zone at the, at the very bottom. And that is still, it's like, that's just like, you know, yeah. it's still just crazy, but crazy, crazy big. Well, I, I love that. I love that you said that. And actually, just before we leave the hydrothermal vent thing, mm -hmm. I remember being in middle school. So everyone start calculating my age when <laughs> they the teachers had caught on to this big news oh. and started telling us about it. Which is, and I was on Guam, so those watching who who don't know this, my dad was in the Air Force and I lived on Guam, so surrounded by ocean for six years. Yeah, and and really close to the Marianas Trench, of right? Course, so yes. some research vessels would take off from there. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, yeah. So and you went was... so far. I mean, okay, the Galapagos is probably a, a fair old sail for, from for Guam, the, but you know, yeah, for the yeah hydrothermal vents, yeah, that's near the Galapagos. That was the first ones, was the Galapagos ones. I'm sure it's... there are lots. There are, I know, a lot closer to Guam as well. And the Pacific is just generally a very exciting, geologically, very exciting mm -hmm. place to be in oceanic. The stuff is amazing around there. So yeah. I know they've done some fantastic research more recently, actually, on seamounts and things around Guam. There's been some wonderful NOAA expeditions with amazing, amazing imagery sport, image sport. Um, it made me think of when I was yeah. a graduate student and about the time of, of the explosion of interest and discovery of, of uh, deterministic chaos everywhere. Oh. It's like okay. somebody found, you know, they found out it could happen. They discovered these nonlinear systems could do this. Mm. You got strange attractors and all of this and suddenly they were everywhere and it's like now hydro hydrothermal vents seem to be everywhere you look almost don't they oh they i mean definitely in the, in the places we know they form um joanne i'd love to ask actually what did you do you remember how you felt when those discoveries were coming like what did you think about that sort of what, was <laughs> oh. it like alien life on earth or like how did it yeah yeah that the whole the lipstick tube worms mm -hmm. those things were like <laughs> what what so um now i was already a curious kid my my path towards science seemed to already be determined but things like that just really you know it blew me away and yeah. and i'm so grateful to the teacher to pointing it out now my parents may have but mm -hmm. i i doubt it i met i remember being in school when i heard about it so cool. and and knowing that really even though it wasn't near guam i'm here where you know, yeah. they were trying to do research and yeah, yeah. everything else. So that was really just so, so cool. exciting. Yeah. yeah, just, I remember being very excited about that, that, you know, and that those things are living there. Yeah. Impossible. And the fact that we're still finding so much more. I mean, yeah, we now, I mean, there's basically vents dotted all the way along the edges of tectonic plates, wherever they may be throughout mm -hmm. the oceans. Um, a lot of them are, have been, uh, many have been studied, but many haven't. And every, pretty much every time somebody goes to look at a new one, it's like, oh, here's another weird thing we didn't know live existed, whether it was a, yeah, a Yeti crab or a scaly foot snail or whoever knows what else is going to come next. Amazing. But you know, there's this amazing I... regional differences in, in vent life. You know, they are very different in different parts of the Pacific. Yeah, those are the... Uh, these are the, all these crabs. Oh my gosh! It's like a mound yeah, of white a crabs. Huge mound of crabs. Exactly. Those are a type of yeti crabs. Um, 
that were originally <laughs> discovered again in the Pacific species. These ones, I think those particular ones are, oh no, those are Antarctic actually, but they were originally discovered in the Pacific. Mm-hmm. Um, there's various different species and yeah, they kind of dot themselves along the vent, these kind of linear, because these the edges of plates are kind of form these lines across the planet, um, almost like the, it's sort of these the stitching, if you like, between the tectonic plates. And uh, the vents form there. And these ones, yeah, these are Antarctica. And th- th- you can see the density of life there. And that's the sort of thing you see, you know, in the middle of a fairly sparsely populated deep ocean. Suddenly it's like, poof, okay, hang on. What's going on here? <laughs> um, and again, it's this reliance on this sort of chemical energy as opposed to sunlight, um, mm-hmm. which is driving these ecosystems. And it's still being, you know, there's still so many questions about how these things are occupied, yeah. how they move around, all these kinds of things. Yeah. I, I'm amazed at the number of things that have no pigment, you know, which you don't need because it's dark and yep. doesn't matter, right? Yeah, but then the stuff is some of it is colorful too, and that's pretty very colorful. Um, that's, right. yeah, that's right. The kind of the the reds we think the red color in the deep ocean is a, is a camouflage thing because at least that's that that's the vampire squid, which is looking yes. beautiful there. The, the very nice squid. picture. Um, but the red coloration we think helps to to make them look really indistinct. And that's kind of mid, the mid waters where there's, uh, well, there's no light, but I think if there's any light at all, it's bioluminescence, which is generally right. blue and green. So the reds are kind of still Red hidden away. Bled, blends in. So, yeah. and you did have quite some, uh, a bit of explanation of the scaly foot snail, which is oh, stunning. Yes. Uh, Isn't that a beautiful picture? That was really lovely. Exactly. It was taken by, um, some, uh, well, for me, for the book by a wonderful scientist called Julia Sigwood, who I spoke to as well. And she she was involved in doing a lot of studies of these guys. They only live, I mean, these ones are, are very strange. So their shells are made of an iron-based compound and there's nothing yeah. else we've discovered that, that does that. They have these tri-layered shells and then the sk- feet covered in scales. I mean, right. big hands and, scales. Like and those are, a, those are the iron, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and they're iron-based scales as well. too. Yeah, yeah, as well, yeah. And so it's been late, latterly discovered. I mean, when they originally found... It's one of these things I love as well. You see something, you know, something's discovered, especially animals in the deep ocean. We find things and people go, hmm, that's, you know, especially something like that. These weird snails with these funny feet. And you think, okay, mm-hmm. why is that? Why? What yeah. what led to that? Was the evolutionary pathway led to that? Why so not? the initial assumptions, and in fact, if you read my earlier book, Spirals and Time, I talk about these guys just briefly. Yes. And the theories back then were, well, those plates must be... Uh, some kind of protective measure, like mm-hmm. they're being attacked by something, right? They're being attacked by crabs or by shell, um, other snails which have these like poison darts to to hunt with. Maybe they're you know they're protecting themselves. And then it turns out down the line, just a few years, more researchers um, have looked in detail and they've taken some of these these scales and they've looked at them under the microscope and found they're full of these tiny wee tubes, like nanoscopic tubes. Mm-hmm. And in fact, it's this incredible like physical process whereby one of the problems with living in these vents um, and what they're doing is they're relying on these bacteria that live inside them. They have these symbioses based on these chemical supping uh, microbes, which are harnessing energy from chemicals coming out of the seabed. Um, so, the, so it's like this dark equivalent to photosynthesis. So the chemosynthesis is, is producing carbohydrates, producing energy, mm-hmm. but using chemical energy as opposed to sun energy, sun's this energy from sunlight. So um, the snails, as well as the, the worms we've talked about, the giant, giant tube worms and, and yeti crabs, everything else are basically relying on these microbes. They, and the snails, like many, have them living inside them. But as a consequence of that process, that chemical process, they produce sulfur, which is toxic to many organisms, especially to snails. And these, like, these feet are basically are pulling that sulfur out of their bodies down these tiny tubes like mm-hmm. a tailpipe on a car and then it's reacting with metals in the water and forming these metal these iron compounds which are then laying down on the surface and so it's like it's not an external threat it's an internal threat that they're, they're protecting themselves from and no one put, no one thought of that when they first looked at them but then you look a bit closer and you realize yeah. that's how they're doing it that's how that's one way they're surviving in this ridiculously extreme environment of a hydrothermal vent and it's 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 amazing. It's really cool. You wonder yeah. after the fact why everyone is so surprised because you've given us this vivid feeling of the ocean, so unimaginably huge, and the water itself and the layers are so many different ecological niches, not to mention the surface, which is not just a featureless surface, but has topography of miles in variety of mountain ranges that are huge, of deep canyons that are huge, of hot spots, of brine pools, of 
all sorts of things. And it seems to me there's a there's an awful lot of Darwinism going on for people. It's like, oh, it's a bunch of bunk. It's like, look at every place you look. There's another weird thing doing something that we couldn't even imagine before because that's what they had to work in in this environmental niche. And yeah. diversity of life evolves in the most interesting ways. It really does. I think that's a huge lesson that the deep ocean tells us. And it's it's why I think quite rightly um, space scientists and, you know, astrozoologists, whoever you want to call them, mm -hmm. people wondering about what life might be like elsewhere. The deep ocean has so much to tell us because it's showing us that life just finds a way, yeah. no and matter that, how, yeah, you know, that where was, or how. You asked about reporting. The thing I remember from the earliest discovery of hydrothermal vents and then the fact that there are animals living there in places that animals were presumed not to be able to live at all. Doing chemosynthesis, also unimaginable, uh, was all about exobiology and things it's like, yeah, could there be life on other planets? Yeah. Science finds sure. new ways, uh, you yeah. know, animals that we've never never thought of before oh yeah i mean there's hydrothermal vents on, on uh, is it uh europa and um mm -hmm. enceladus you know mm -hmm. i mean mm -hmm. go check you never know <laughs> Let me tell for all those I mean, years that i grew up of people saying obviously life needs this and this and this it's exactly. like boy i think all of those were wrong uh and that's I mean, that's exciting life does but now that we know that it's a totally different way of being like a whole new way of having biological life it's and who knows yeah. what else we might find too i mean i think that's it we mustn't just limit our horizons anymore because you never know what might come up but the deep no. ocean tells us such a big lesson and just what's possible yeah but it is exciting with your with your submersible and things because it is a time when when there's great value in just looking at things and and, and places yeah. that's that's always very exciting yeah, I mean, I think uh, what I've found a lot with this of deep sea biology community is that they are they're genuinely kind of part scientists, part explorers. Yes. Um, yeah. And that's, you know, it, it's not to belittle just exploring as its own thing. But I mean, it's because, you know, pretty much any time anyone goes, I mean, people do return to the same places to do studies and so on. But pretty much every time you look into the deep ocean, you, no one's looked at that bit before that piece of water, that piece of seafloor. It's so it's it's rare that you kind of go go back very much so you are exploring and because we've as we've touched on the diversity of the the geology and the topography and the biology in the light in the deep ocean you're always going to find new things um yeah. so so yeah but it's sort of translating i think that exploration into science as well it's like it's you know what what do we do with that knowledge of knowing these things exist and there's always the kind of the next level sort of um, aside from just let's, I mean, it, I think there is something to be said for absolutely knowing what what we are, what sh we share our planet with, and, and mm -hmm. coming up with a better, better idea of the sorts of the the diversity of life that's out there. But it's those I, for me the exciting parts is when those big lessons come, like things like a huge yeah. breakthrough, like chemosynthesis, or new ecosystems, or you know, a new understanding of some. It, yeah, a lot of the time, I mean, a lot of the time, to be honest, deep sea biology is like, how the hell are you doing that? Like, yes. that's the big yeah. question. Yeah. How, 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 how is this possible? How are you feeding? How are you finding a mate? How, uh, yeah, and, and, and so many of those questions are still unanswered. Um, we, that there's always those kind of Do we in the public develop more empathy when we find out that whales dive so deeply? And then there you are with the question. It's like, and how in the world do they do that? Yeah. I enjoyed the whole discussion about sticky myoglobins and things so that, oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. and then that the Let's fact that they're, <laughs> they're down hunting for squids who may be oxygen deprived. And so they turn a little stupid and they go, Oh, look, it's a whale. And the whale eats them. Yeah. Um, it's pretty smart. Isn't it? yeah, it's like I've got my own oxygen. You guys, you guys just have to tough out with this meager <laughs> ocean born stuff to breathe through whereas the whales are like in their own little capsules of, of but, air of atmosphere yeah but you don't find that out about whale blood and the ability to carry oxygen with them in a, a unique a uniquely evolved way until you find out that they dive to these extraordinary yeah. depths and live there i mean i love that as well i mean it was really not that long ago like surprisingly recently there was discovered that they that sperm whales specifically these wonderful i mean there's several Several, I mean, many whales do deep, very, do dive very deep, but I think I find the sperm whales the most kind of 
curious and fascinating because we do know a good we're getting to know them better but it wasn't that long ago that people were like so how do they hunt i mean we know they hunt because they we catch them they've been caught for centuries and their stomachs are full of the beaks of squid yeah. of really big squid as well the ones we know live down in the deep so so how are they catching them what are they doing like how do they do it yeah that question you know are they just hanging there and waiting for stuff to come by are they luring them in mm -hmm. with some sort of like glowing white belly um and then you know it turns out they're like bats and they have sonar and they're chasing yeah. around and yeah i love this i just love this picture of finally someone was like we've got this device which shows us where they're moving and how far and and, and we can listen and we can get the movements and we're basically tracking them doing these like chasing after a squid and it does a handbrake turn at the end and oh sucks my goodness the in and they you know that we know that now and this is all happening by by the way at like three thousand four thousand feet down yeah yeah um Amazing. and it's yeah, it's that again, it's the, it's answering those questions is how this all works that opens up this whole new kind of like, oh, you know, a whole new understanding of these animals and what they're well, doing and how they're communicating and a new appreciation things. too. I hope that's what made the, you know, the, the section yeah. and exploitation. So disappointing. And there all these interesting facts, like here's one that just jump out. It's a tiny little fact. And yet it's kind of a shocking fact. You say you and in 1930s Europe, almost half of all margarine spreads were made from hydrogenated whale oil. Yep. Yeah. I know, yeah. Right? We still and killed um, whales just to make butter margarine. substitutes. Yeah. yeah. I know. It's cool. I mean, I remember, I mean, talking about the kind of what, what sort of trauma childhood sort of coming through. I, I mean, I remember being kind of in the schoolyard it was like oh you know you shouldn't lick stamps or uh envelopes because that's whale um that's made out of whales or lipstick as well. and, you know, like, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah and that was the yeah. kind of, we would talk about it in in the schoolyard um and i think looking back i mean at the time i wasn't i don't think i really understood and i didn't really know what that meant you know or, or if it was true but looking back i think it, it could have been i mean we're talking that was like in the in the eight, early yes. 80s the moratorium yeah. didn't come in until 82 i yeah. mean it might have just been the tail end of like oh well you know my mom and dad used to kind of thing whatever but mm -hmm. still really shocking that within absolutely within lifetime uh this was normal it was either people was, didn't yeah. realize or it was completely normal for whale to be this commercial like industrial product that was getting into our yeah. into everyone's diets Every, and everything lives. Yeah. yeah i interestingly just recently i went to nantucket and they have a whaling museum there and um and it was so fascinating now you know i i thought oh, i'm, I'm not going to care about this but the biology of it all and um you know and then how things changed you know whales were becoming in short supply petroleum came along yeah. So luckily we didn't need to continue to kill sperm whales and, you know, puncture this gland to have all their oil spill out. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It was, yeah, yeah. it was so, it was more fascinating than I thought. And they had a full sperm whale skeleton there because one had washed up on the beach in like mm -hmm. 1998 or something. Mm -hmm. And they even had this little documentary about how, you know, they they were trying okay how can we take this apart how can we you know and they discovered that the old tools were actually better at this oh, removing really? the blubber than oh, you know wow. the new fancier tools and um you know because nobody's been doing this in recent years right and then the yeah. surprise <clears throat> of actually puncturing that gland with the mm -hmm. oil and mm -hmm. how much came out of the spermaceti oil came out was yeah. really astonishing to them. Gosh. And yeah. yeah, so I was like, you know, it's funny, we move away from doing those things and how much we even forget. So it's there's discovery yeah. and then there's rediscovery because yeah. yeah so yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So if you haven't been to that museum, I recommend it. I oh, wasn't I sure. Yeah. Everyone said go visit it when you're on Nantucket. I'm like, really? And then but it was a surprise a gem really That's awesome i'm actually going to be doing it and again not in person sadly but i am going to do a talk in nantucket athenium so i shall ask oh them. yes yes ask about yeah, yeah. Yeah. oh yeah well because they're very they're very you know proud of this history yeah and, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah but and also some of the 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 oil they had was responsible for a very big fire that destroyed Oh, no. to the town so it's oh, really? I, i'm just like oh, wow, wow this this is i had no idea i would find this so fascinating wow. but it Story. was yeah very much so i was happy to read about that like on the heels of having 
returned from, you know, this trip and yeah, I like how that all builds on each other. So, well, okay, so I want to ask you, you had a question or you had a comment that there are more astronomers than astronauts. There are more deep sea biologists than the ones who go on Argonauts, mm -hmm. right? Right, <laughs> like who go <laughs> under the ocean. So, um, so as a marine biologist though, what, what do you need to be a marine biologist? It seems it can run the whole gamut. You could stay and look mm -hmm. at collections of things, people, or you can dive yourself, or you can really dive in a submersible. So this field I mean, seems really big. And since you're our first marine biologist, oh. I thought I would take this opportunity <laughs> to ask about the field. And there may be people here interested or who have young yeah. people in their life interested. Yeah. Oh, I mean, it's it's a hugely wide field, I guess. And it's, I mean, we could talk about marine science as an even mm -hmm. bigger field of that and pick out whether you're most interested in in the life stuff, which is the biology or the chemistry or the physics, or you want to wrap it all up together. And there's all these intersectional kind of, you know, biochemical um, oceanographers and, and people who mm -hmm. really think across those boundaries. Because, I mean, I think to really understand the oceans and to understand how they work, we do need, we need people specializing and we need that kind of crossover between all these different areas. It's so, it's all so tied together, the physics, the chemistry, the biology. Um, but if we narrow and down biology, biology, we means life and ecosystems. And, yeah, life yeah. and eco understanding. Yeah, this, the what's there. Um, that's a lot. The living systems. Um, whether that's um, focusing in on a particular species and understanding how that lives and survives, or tracing you know connections through to a whole ecosystem and habitats. That and that's that, that's you know all, all under that kind of marine biology thing. I mean, I guess the kind of the the um, the kind of cliched. Uh, idea of a marine biologist is somebody who studies dolphins, um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> gets to swim with those guys. Uh, and, and, you know, there's plenty of marine biologists who don't even, who don't scuba dive, who don't get wet, if you like. I mean, there's plenty yeah. of dry marine biology to be done. Because, I mean, partly, I mean, as of showing in the book with deep sea biology, I mean, there's so much that can be done now with these remote tools, um, the technologies we have to study these places where it's very difficult and very dangerous and expensive to put human beings. Therefore, you know, we've got these incredible ways of studying these distant, distant shores and distant, distant realms of the oceans. Um, so really it's, it's whatever you want to do. I mean, I would say in terms of what it's like being a deep sea biologist out working in the oceans, uh, out, out at sea, that in itself, even if you're not on an expedition, um, we call them cruises, actually. So there's one thing. I don't remember if that's in the book or not. I think I forget if my editor was like. Uh, you mentioned that. Yeah. I, you had a end note, like I that did. you could we rent. Could. You could rent. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, so you know these research cruises, you're spending days at the least, probably weeks, if not months, in at sea. On, basically on a, on a mobile research platform. So, you know, a ship is where scientists just, you know, go and live and do their science 24-7. And that's an extraordinary thing to be able to do. I mean, not a lot of, I mean, some scientists will go into the field and they'll immerse themselves, but you really are, you know, you're a team working together for that time on mm -hmm. this mobile thing. It's, you're, you know, stuck in the middle of the ocean um, together, working towards understanding this particular, whatever particular part of the deep is that you're you're interested in, that you're looking at. And it's an extraordinary thing. I and mean, the camaraderie is amazing. Um, the idea of discovery and exploration is extraordinary. Um, you know, that's, that is a wonderful part of, of this type of work is, is getting to do those sorts of expeditions. They're very expensive. I mean, that's the other thing that's a difficult thing about deep sea biology. It's not cheap to get these ships and run them. I mean, you can just imagine the, the costs of, of the equipment and of the, the, the crew and, you know, everyone that needs to be involved in that. Um, so that's one side of it. But then, you know, we have other technologies like satellite based technologies, incredible stuff. We're learning about the oceans and how they work from space. Um, uh, so, you know, there's, there's, if you're, if there are people out there who are fascinated with big scale processes and, and are really good at computers, I'm going to mm -hmm. say in a very general way, then there's amazingly powerful ways of understanding more about the planet and how it's changing um, and the oceans and how they're changing from space and from remotely collected um, data sets and so on. So, you know, it, I think marine biology can be everything, anything from someone who's, you know, focusing down on one group of animals and wants to know everything about that that thing and those things and you go out and you find them and you study them and you bring them back to the lab and you use genetic techniques or whatever it is you want you have at your fingertips to understand its life through to you know stand back and understand how the the, the 
the oceans work with the currents and with waves and with storms and um, how that all ties together. So you've got a huge range of scales at which you could be focusing yeah. your your mind, I guess, when it comes to the ocean. So I think um, you know it can be all, it can be all sorts of things. It really can. It's it's a really diverse field i guess in that sense you know it's 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 science but applied to the ocean in whatever way you can imagine basically any way you can (laughs) since we have a big cross-section of science it seems like maybe in this century that there has been a lot more cross-disciplinary flow than there was before people used to specialize much more i felt like uh and now you're talking about this we've talked to we talked about archaeology from space earlier and it's like I recognize from, you know, my trajectory in physics and then computers and analyses and statistics, these things have ways to flow out into marine biology and mapping. Mm -hmm. And then there's the remote sensing and that Mm -hmm. can be the space people, that can be the oceanography, it can be physical things. And there's a lot of blending going on that's exciting. And maybe it's just a an evolutionary thing if this is where the that all of the interesting things to look at and discoveries to be made at the moment seem to be at these boundaries that have become kind of soft and so a lot of the physicists never would have happened before but a lot of physicists i know now are something hyphen physicists right yeah health physicists radiation physicists marine physicists yeah uh whatever uh and that's cool uh, and as you talk, I'm thinking, it's like, yeah, I have these tools that could be involved. And I think, you know, no doubt a lot of other people in different disciplines listen and to that or read the book and too, say, right? you know, there are tools that can be brought to yeah. bear on these these questions. Yeah. And and how I mean, how much do you think it's also like a, a mindset that comes with someone who's yes. studying a living system or someone who's studying the physics of it or the chemistry of it? Well, my earlier question of predispositions, of blindness, of saying we must think out the side the box, but you know that box is a lot bigger than than the one we see, and uh, or it's a lot smaller or something. That's a bad metaphor. Uh, (laughs) If we can't think of it, we don't think of it. Uh, Yeah, until until there's a reason to look. Yeah, yeah, motivation to look. What I find exciting, Helen, is okay. So you don't need to get the big grant to go on an expedition, you get to say, I'm writing a book. Can I join you on your expedition? <laughs> and how easy is that to do, to just reach out to someone and, and, well, and um, do you get turned down more than you get? And yeah. Oh, you know, actually it's, um, I'm very, <laughs> in a very lucky position. Um, I'm in a fortunate position that I've um, come across a lot of very generous and wonderful uh, scientists who, who mm-hmm. take, communication very seriously so they you know it's not a it's not a small deal by any means to uh, allocate a bunk in a ship to yeah to a to a to a to a journalist or to a writer i mean i kind of have the benefit of being able to actually do this some of the science too because a lot of the time there'll be a a mixed team of people on a ship so for example the the cruise i went on for the when i was researching the book uh to the gulf of mexico the um it was a very young team there were people on the ship uh who hadn't been to sea before um, so for them, it was a learning experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, and that's what I find really wonderful as well about this kind of, I, and, and I find that across the board in so many different expeditions I've been involved in and, and people I've spoken to is there's often a real, a real mix from the profs all the way down to undergraduates even who are taken mm-hmm. out. And it's all part of that process of becoming a, a marine, a deep sea scientist is, is getting out there on ships and getting that experience and learning from others at sea. So everyone is learning. So I was there too. I mean, I, I'm I'm a trained marine biologist, and maybe I've, my mo- most of my experiences in 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 other places, which I've, when I've done my own research, it's usually in shallower seas. But you know, my experience is deepening, and and that's valuable on the ship as well. So I could mm-hmm. kind of chip in, and and a lot of the time, you know, anyone could do it. You know, it's it's not well. You know, it's like go pick out the creatures from that pot of uh, stuff <laughs> we've just <laughs> sure, and go help them put that thing in. And you know, it's 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 stuff that we can all you know get involved in um if you if you're you know want to put yourself on a ship so um i found them very welcoming incredibly welcoming and um and i think that is i think it's just an indication of how i guess it it kind of ties back as well jeff to this these ideas we spoke of originally which is the, the hidden nature of the deep ocean that the, the the secluded nature of what all mm-hmm. of this is 
And I think I find deep sea scientists incredibly aware of the role they have in showing others what's there. Yeah. And so they're yeah. on the power of communication, whether it's films, whether it's books, radio, whatever it might be, just talking to people. I mean, they do these fantastic live link-ups to the deep. Um, there's one I think going on this yes. week. I think it's still happening. The Schmidt Ocean Institute's got one going out. NOAA have the Okeanos Explorer. Um, I'm forgetting one more. It's in the back of the book. I must mention that one too. But basically you can link up live on YouTube and see right. what they're doing. Yeah, I love uh, it. It comes it, across my Twitter feed on occasion so and I'm like, what? And they're it's like, the Ocean Look Exploration at this. Trust. Um, it's it, yeah, Nautilus is the other one. That one they great. I mean, I find them really just. Yeah. I don't get anything done those days. I'm trying to. And work. then just... you hear you hear people going, "Oh, it's so cute." Yeah, because it's narrated. Like, what the heck yes. is that? We've never seen that before. Yeah. Wait, right, right. Yes. <laughs> It's this, and it truly is this kind of, it's like this uh, collaboration. I mean, I know that, you know, scientists are kind of pinging in and listening in from all around mm -hmm. the world, experts on a particular group, or they'll call someone up and be like, hey, wait, we need to get to, we need Chris Marr to tell us what this sea, sea urchin is, because he's the yes. guy in sea urchins, yes. and he'll come in and be like, no, it's this, and it's like, he's the urchin guy. Science. He's the urchin guy, exactly. So, yeah, uh, or whoever it might, you know, whatever they need. Um so I love that. So I know I think I think deep sea scientists take like, take all of that very seriously in terms of trying to show as many people as possible what's there, um, and we have those tools now, which is super cool. Yeah, you've done with it. this book, I think a a very important work. Of yes. you, there were three sections, and I, I I didn't read the contents to know what was coming, <laughs> but there's you know like seeing how big the ocean is, seeing what all the life is like, and then seeing how people want to exploit it. And this whole mindset of people's like, look, the ocean is underexploited. It's like, what does that, what does that <laughs> even mean? And yeah. I think you've demonstrated and started to solve the problem. It's like, you can't have, what do you want to call it? A modern feel about preserving or trying to take care of the oceans <clears throat> without some empathy and some understanding of the, what's there, what could be lost, and how huge that is. And then not only the exploitation, but then the physical processes of seeing how important the ocean, a component the ocean is of a global view of warming and what prevents warming and things. And the fact that, oh, I don't know if I can find it here that uh, more, oh, here it is. More than 90% of the extra heat trapped by human emitted carbon dioxide has been taken up by the oceans. Who knew that? Without all the ocean's water, global temperatures on land would already be over 96 degrees Fahrenheit, higher than during pre-industrial times. Across the United States, average summer temperatures would exceed 160 degrees Fahrenheit. It's like, the oceans aren't just there for sailing on. Right. <laughs> yes. The, the heat capacity of the ocean is huge. It is a significant player in moderating temperatures and moderating carbon dioxide, but it's not a limitless resource either. No, exactly. And I think that in the deep is definitely like the pen, the, the, the movement of heat down into the deep, the movement of carbon into the deep and the, yeah, the, the limits on, on that are stuff that we are still getting a grasp on and an understanding, A, you know, how important it is and B, how much that might change um yeah if we push, you know and then uh, that, i mean it's yeah it's 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 an amazing buffer for the planet it's it's a critical it's an absolute life-giving buffer to the planet um anyway there, even there are amazing there things like that and then the the whole discussion you had of of orange ruffy uh, or slime head uh exploitation and the fact that like with the whales is sometimes I think we have a romantic notion of whaling as they go out and they catch two or three a year versus thousands were killed. And there were not mm -hmm. much more than thousands. There were maybe 100,000. Significant fractions of them were, were killed every year. And, you know, when you read, it's like, well, what's, what's wrong with catching a few fish? It's like, we're not catching a few fish. We're talking about 160,000 tons a month, a year, whatever. Just simply enormous amounts that reduce populations by extraordinary 
amount and yeah I, I mean i think that's the i mean the lesson sort of the, the two lessons i think in the book one being that you know from the whalings the the, the impact that whaling could have had with fairly basic technologies was extraordinary right. i mean yeah yes. it got wrapped off in the 20 what people perhaps don't quite appreciate so much is that sure there was those sort of you know the moby dick era of whaling yeah. and that was all that was the romantic side of it you know back then and even that was causing huge impacts on, on populations yeah. and then there was like a 21st century whaling spree which which was even worse when things got mechanized and um, you know, more than twice the number of sperm whales were caught than are alive today. Something like I think mm -hmm. it's something like seven hundred fifty thousand were killed, and, it, and we think yeah. about mm -hmm. three sixty thousand are left. Um, and then the idea that that technology is now applied to catching things like you say, like these fish, these orange roughy, which can live for two hundred fifty years, which yeah. don't mature until they're maybe twenty or thirty, forty years old, and they live on these underwater seamounts, which are underwater mountains, volcanoes. Some of them active, some of them. Uh, dormant um these huge physical features which are, are pretty easy to find and the fish very you know um helpfully congregate around these features to mm -hmm. spawn so they're easy to catch you've got the technologies to find those mountains you've got the gear to be able to fish at a thousand meters three thousand feet four thousand feet down and so, yeah and one just one trawl net can bring up tens of tons hundreds of tons i'm gonna just check the number actually on that because yeah. that's one of the things that i am um, yeah. forgetting exactly how many anyway why you looked that up and they had a yeah. promotional campaign essentially to get people to want to yeah. eat these fish. Yeah. Yes. Hey, Changing we're the catching name, these fish. We should sell them. Yeah. Oh, people aren't eating them. Let's tell them they should yeah. eat them. Well, it was an under, <laughs> under exploited market. Right. <laughs> the idea of underexploitation, yeah, is 50 tons. So in one single trawl net, you could get 50 yeah. tons of these fish, yeah. which is just, it's crazy. And then, you know, and the numbers kind of, you know, they, they stay high and then they suddenly collapse. And then you realize, oh, you've, you know, we've, We've taken all the fish. And by the way, we're also destroying all these thousand year old yes. in the process too right. that live on these seamounts. And once they've gone, then it gets a bit easier to fish and so on. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, it wraps this idea of under exploitation. It just, it's this idea that the oceans are there for us, you know, to use and, and yeah. as if that yeah. was why they exist and why the life in the ocean exists. It's my shortest, us. my shortest note from your book was around page 180. I wrote the perils of extractivism. Yeah. 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 yeah, exactly. We're doing it again and again. And the question is, I think now we face is, well, can, is, the, is there a way for humanity to, to actually learn from past mistakes? Yeah. We are, are there, we are there new attitudes early. developing? Do we well, have I hope? hope? So. <laughs> I have, I have to have hope at this point. Otherwise yeah. I don't know what, what we do. Um, I think the issue of deep sea mining uh, is, is critical right at this moment in time. We have some it very is. important developments have happened. But since your, written the your book. book, and so the good thing I want to maybe finish with or something is that your book has given us this this wonderful image of uh, some idea of how big the ocean is, how varied the ocean is, of the amazing creatures that live there, how they live everywhere there, quite contrary to our expectations of not so long ago, and putting all that next to, and here's what people want to do to it. Mm is um a useful dramatization of what's going on what can be lost what the values are and things i i thought yeah. that was uh, thank you that was very useful <laughs> thank yeah. you i mean that was my plan i think was hopefully to mm -hmm. show that sort of what's mm -hmm. here and what's at stake I and think why it we worked. should care um <laughs> well <laughs> i ambition. your your subtitle ends with and the looming threat that imperils it and in my mind i start clicking off things plastics in the ocean, climate change, overfishing. But then when we got to the part of deep sea mining, like yeah. literally <laughs> digging into the ocean floor and the crust and extracting metals and all the implications for that, I was astounded. I was angry. I was, I couldn't believe it. And yeah, so why don't you sort of recap a little bit just for our audience what's here? Jeff's talked about a little bit. I, mm. I think people should hear like what can happen. And you, you then you took the knock on effects of the you know ecosystems. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm sorry I made you angry, but that was kind of the point. Well. <laughs> hey, I, I, you know, when I'm like telling you know my friends and my daughter, I'm like, oh my gosh, this book has just upset me so much. But I mean, in, anger in is a good way, of course, I think. And that's, yes. and everyone should be, angry. we all should be incandescent with rage as incandescent. Yes. I mean, I've kind of, I am, I'm, I am glowing with rage and I have been for years. So I think I've managed to kind of know how to sort of 
Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> or trying to channel it. I guess it's what this book is. It's my. It's the effort of me channeling that uh, that anger that this could be happening. Okay, so I mean, so there's been we're in a big second wave now of interest in deep sea mining. This this began in the 60s and 70s, just up to the early 80s, when people originally thought, hey, there are these rocks at the bottom of the ocean that are just rocks, and they're full of metals, and we could make some money out of that, and we could use those. Mm -hmm. And oh, we're going to run out of metals on that, aren't we? Um, you know, the, there is a finite uh, resource on that. We could we could find this alternative, and it's true. There is a, there is a lot of metal, not as much as people originally thought, but there is a lot of metal in the deep ocean. Um, but for various reasons, that first wave of interest faded away and stopped. Um, but now we're in the second wave now, and the big story be we're being told by the companies who want to make an enormous amount of money. They think, well, if in various ways they're going to make a lot of money out of this. Um, uh, because we need, we now need metals for electric car batteries and for solar panels and for mm -hmm. wind turbines and for things that are going to get us out of this climate crisis that we're currently living through. So, and it's a, it was a big reason why I wanted to write the book actually, because I kept hearing, hearing this narrative of this is how we're going to have green uh, global economies is using deep sea metals. And that's yes. our best choice. Um, they are going to have less impact than mining on land is. Um, we desperately need all of this, this, these metals in order to make this stuff. And I just thought, well, is that true? And and what's really behind those figures? And um, you know, and to get to grips with that, I figured I'd need to spend some time, and and a book would be a good way to spend that time looking into this issue. So you know, so I did that, and I was looking and speaking to people about like predicting where metals are going to come from in the future, and and what's going to be needed, and all those kinds of things are really complicated. Turns out, it's no simple matter to say we are going to need X, Y, Z elements and amounts of it in 10, 15, 20, 50 years time, and it's going to come from these sources in these places. Um, that simply is, it's, I mean, that's what anyone who knows anything about mining will tell you there's no way we can be sure what that's going to be. Then you talk to the technologists, people who are who are looking at how to build electric car batteries, who are looking at how to do the next generations of these technologies, which sure, we are going to need to get ourselves off of fossil fuels. We are going to need metals. We're going to need these technologies to produce energy, to store it, to move ourselves around the planet. But is it going to be the ways we have now? And that's what shocked me is that a lot of these arguments in favor of deep sea mining are based on technologies that are could quite quickly become out of date, actually. Mm -hmm. Cobalt is one example. It's a really important metal at the moment, cobalt, in this whole debate, uh, because it's one that could come from the deep ocean, from these rocky mm -hmm. nodules. Um, but most of it currently comes from really horrible mines in the Democratic Republic of Congo. No doubt. Those are d dreadful for human beings, dreadful for the environment. That needs to be cleaned up. They need to be figured out. Um, one thing is, even if we do go to the deep ocean, it doesn't do anything, you know, that's, it's not a zero sum game, we're going to have both. Those mm -hmm. mines in Congo are going to mm -hmm. keep going. Um, but equally, there are, you know, and it's, it is currently a, an element used in electric car batteries, but people are working on cobalt free batteries, Tesla are already doing that. Um, it isn't that long until the technologies can and should be able to advance to say, well, what minerals do we need? What metals can we get hold of? Mm -hmm. How, by the way, are we going to recycle all of this and reuse all of this stuff and be really smart about the way we transition to a green economy? Um, we're very smart. Human beings can be incredibly um, inventive <laughs> and clever about the way we do things. So oftentimes we can't, but I do really think that if we get the right people pushing in the right directions, we will be able to make those transitions without um, saying that we need the deep ocean. And then, you know, aside from the demand part of the question is the whole ecological impact of it. And, and, the, and the big, and I'm going to say the big lies that are being spread, and they, mm -hmm. they are lies, um, and they are openly being made at the moment, mm -hmm. as we're increasingly discovering by these big mining companies. Yeah. They are lying about the fact that you can compare the impacts of deep sea mining to land-based mining. We cannot. No. We simply do not have the understanding yet of deep sea ecosystems. We have already got a good guess. It's going to be awful um, by the fact that we're extracting um, basically the basis of habitats. It's not only these rocks in abyssal plains we're looking at exploiting, hydrothermal vents, these extraordinary ecosystems we've been mm -hmm. talking about. They are also a target for mining. Um, uh, even if they'll tell you that they'll mine ones that have become inactive, um, <laughs> that's a big question. Even if you can find them, is it really the case that they've completely gone out, if you like? Mm -hmm. um, and, and, hard, and these underwater mountains, these um, seamounts are also covered in metal-rich crusts, um, and they're also a target for mining. So we've got these three places in the ocean that are hugely important for biodiversity, incredibly important, although we're still finding out important for processes in the health of the ocean more mm -hmm. widely. Um, and the impacts of mining aren't just going to be where that mine 
is operating. These are going to be um, causing a huge amounts of light pollution, huge amounts of noise pollution and, and sedimentation too. These great big plumes of muddy sediments are going to be thrown up into the water column. There's tailings that will go back into the ocean after the mining uh, ores have been processed on a ship. There's all these different aspects to the impacts of mining, which we are only just starting to get a handle on. Um, so you know, to, to make it a simplistic statement, it's going to be better than land-based mining. We just can't say that. It's not true. Um, I was uh, one thing you made a point about was uh, the tailings and and all this the byproduct will get into, you know, if there's some toxic metals chemicals will get into the fish we consume. Yeah, mm -hmm. the things yeah, we like consume. A, a huge portion of <clears throat> take tuna, for example. A lot of the tuna is coming from the Pacific, where there's big plans to go mining. And they not only they dive down into the twilight zone to feed, these animals feed, are going to be going right into these places where mining tailings are going to potentially be dumped. Um, and it could easily, you know, we're just, again, trying to understand how these ecosystems are going to get contaminated. Um, but these, not, these ores are going to have toxic metals, which are going to get ground up. Some of that's mm -hmm. going to probably end up getting back. I mean, we just don't know how that whole process is going to work. But it could well be tuna, whale sharks, whales, um, seabirds are going to, be, that their ecosystems are going to be contaminated. Their food webs are going to be contaminated by this process, um, which is, you know, even if you look, the, the footprint of a mine is going to be enormous, hundreds of thousands of square kilometers. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's just the start of it. So yes. it's, it is crazy. But it's happily, happily. <laughs> so so it's, it's not just an expose. And so I was, I still enjoyed overall the book because the, the horror of the exploitation chapters uh, was heightened, as it should be, just by how much we learned from the first two sections about what an exciting and and big and, I don't know, teeming place the ocean is and how much is going on. And then, I mean, you know, it's like, how can you compare these things you can't? But it helps to know how how much you can lose before you talk about yeah. what could be lost. Um, so, I I didn't feel like it was a sad. Oh no, story. I was. I, no, no, I loved. <laughs> I enjoyed the, book. the first part so much, and it certainly informed. <laughs> it made for mm -hmm. a better appreciation of the discussion of some of these these industrial exploitive uh, problems. Right. Well, and I had hope because there was that prescience of. Uh, the law of the seas, the UN, yeah. that was yeah. very, yes. I was like, yeah, oh, thank and, goodness, and right, somebody was on. <laughs> and right now, I mean, it is a very, it's a critical time for all of these issues. I, I don't think I could have possibly anticipated that uh, my book was going to come out at a time when some really big, important decisions are being made since the book was, I finished writing it. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm hoping, and I'm writing more about this in the, in the wider press. A lot of people are talking right. about the, the ever more important need for a moratorium. I mean, as you've seen in the book, I make a strong case for no exploitation in the deep. And I stand by that, absolutely. But I mean, mm -hmm. a, a good first step is going to be no deep sea mining for 10 years, if we could do that. And there's ever more reason for that to be, um, for that to happen. Whether it will, we'll see. I think it's a huge test of of that system, of this, this law of the sea, and the fact that there are, you know, there are parts of that which say we have to, we have to protect the deep ocean. Mm -hmm. We have to protect the oceans as a whole. Um, they matter. They really do, and and that's not just uh, sub, that's not just words. That's you know that is law. Um, so it's going to be. There are some fantastic marine ocean lawyers who are working really hard on this. There's all sorts of wonderful people. That's what gives me hope. Actually, is that there are incredible scientists, lawyers, uh, economists, people working on this issue. It's not just me uh, saying these things <laughs> by any means. Right. Um, and more and more people that are learning to care. I think, and uh, or just seeing hopefully that there's mm -hmm. there's so much to lose. Like you say, Jeff, it's not just. Uh, we can do this because there's nothing there and it doesn't it doesn't you know it's it has no consequence um, right it has huge consequences but also just you know how wonderful to know that there are all these things in the ocean mm -hmm. still there are still scaly foot snails and yeti mm -hmm. crabs and crazy luminous jellyfish <laughs> and all sorts of things you know just knowing Worms. them even if we don't yes. get to see them ourselves you know it's great that they yeah. exist yeah it's so wonderful well it, it, it's wondrous yeah. yeah it's amazing so actually we're coming to the end of an hour and um, yeah, so I just want to remind people again, we've been talking about The Brilliant Abyss by Helen Scales, and I highly recommend it. I really enjoyed it. And it's okay if uh, it also made me angry because <laughs> <laughs> at the end, just it, I wasn't angry about the ocean or the scientists. <laughs> I was angry about greed. 
<laughs> I suppose. <laughs> but yeah, so we are so glad you came on. It's such a pleasure to finally meet you after having read some of your books. And yeah, so do you have plans for another or is this a I, good stopping point for a few years anyway? I, I, I seem to want to keep doing this. So I'm, I do have plans <laughs> for more books. Um, oh, good. Uh, and it comes at a good time, you know. It's like a like a very cyclical thing being an author. You know, you spend all that time with a subject, and you write the book, and you you cry and you sweat and you have joyous times all the way through that writing process, and then you forget about it for a bit, and it goes off to the publishers, <laughs> and they come back and they say change this, and you like work hard and work more and more, and then it becomes a thing that you can hold. This is the British version. I, I want to take oh, a vote yes. sometime on whether you prefer the Brit British version or the American cover. I like them both ah. um, in different ways. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, and then I get to do this, which is just the <laughs> best part of all of this is speaking to wonderful, wonderful people like yourselves who have thought about my words and my ideas. And it's just a huge privilege. Um, so that's the time when I go, oh, yeah, I want to do this again. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I get to do this. So I do. I, I'm I'm holding on to exactly what it's going to be. But I will have an announcement very soon about the next book, which um, will Wonderful. still be ocean related. Um, I hopefully will still have the mixture of, of ideas. Um, that mm -hmm. I've managed to capture in this one, but uh, I I will be carrying on. I'm also doing some children's books as well. I'm oh, just starting. Oh, I think so. I saw something about that. Yeah, I have one, one already out about the Great Barrier yes. Reef, which is wonderful, and I have a couple more in the pipeline too. And that for me is a great uh, adventure as well. So it's oh, all, that's fantastic. all great. Yeah. Excellent. Oh, wonderful! Wow, we we are so glad you joined us. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you. And no, absolutely. Thank you so much for your thoughtful questions, and it was a really wonderful conversation. Thank yeah. you for your book. Thank you very much. Which was a very <laughs> valuable read. Well, okay. thank you. Thanks so much. All right. On behalf of us here at Read Science, we'll see you guys again. See you again. <laughs>